Last time we spoke about the grueling battle for Boonagona. The villages of Boonagona had been captured, but the Americans and Australians had a lot more ground to take before their job was done. By Christmas Day, American companies were marching upon the Buna government station while the Australians were marching in the direction of Gurua. Then, over on Starvation Island, the situation was so dire for the Japanese, they had to perform a feint to draw the American army's attention away from their coastal lines. They chose to mount their feint from Mount Austin to draw the Americans there, and the feint worked. Now the Americans would be marching upon the seahorse and galloping horse to face the brutal defenses of the Gifu to claim Mount Austin's peak. But today we're going to venture back to the Burma front where a new offensive is commencing. This episode is the first Arakan campaign. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm just releasing a seven-part series on China's warlord era. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. While the Americans and Australians were tipping the balance of power in the South Pacific, over in Burma, it still rested firmly in the hands of the Japanese. The British had lost entire armies in Malaya and Burma throughout the year of 1942, and they were now patiently rebuilding those said forces under the guiding hands of Lieutenant General Slim. Now back when we were talking about Burma, General Stilwell was planning a new Burma offensive set for October. Stilwell sought to attack Burma from Yunnan province with 50 to 20 Chinese divisions, while the American and British would put up about 5 to 7 divisions plus some paratroopers into a front offensive from India and an amphibious operation against Rangoon. Stilwell had to negotiate with his best friend, Mr. Peanut, Chiang Kai-shek, who laid out three major demands to consider a new Burma campaign. Number one was that three United States divisions needed to be brought to India, alongside 500 aircraft guaranteeing 5,000 tons of supplies being flown over the hump each month. And he demanded that this all be met by August. After tedious back and forth fighting and drama between Stilwell and Chiang Kai-shek, Stilwell laid out four major reasons for the Burma campaign. Number one, they needed to establish a base for which a counteroffensive against Japan could be formed. Number two, they needed to prevent Germany, Italy, and Japan from joining forces in the Middle East. Number three, they had to open a line of communication from India to China so large quantities of supplies could be brought to China, thereby, quote, enabling the Chinese to complete their plan for a general counteroffensive at an early date. Number four, they had to keep the Japanese too busily occupied to seize the initiative anywhere else in the Pacific. The plan, as you would imagine, received a lot of favor in Washington. The British, however, were not too enthusiastic. 
but they were not opposed to it outright. The British did, however, accuse Stilwell of seeing only his theatre of war while ignoring the overall picture, which is rich coming from the British who spent the majority of World War II trying to hold on to their empire at the cost of their allies. Yet the logic behind the campaign was just. The Allies needed Burma to get China the supplies she needed to continue the war. The miserable trickle that had made it over the hump was not nearly enough. Chiang Kai-shek was not enthusiastic about the Burma offensive, but like the British, he did not turn it down outright. Instead, he began to bargain. Chiang Kai-shek wanted America to send combat divisions, more air forces and air transport. Likewise, he wanted the British to attack by sea simultaneously while the campaign kicked off in North Burma. He asked the Allies to provide at least three battleships and six aircraft carriers to obtain air dominance over the China and Java Seas so they could recapture the Andaman Islands and perform an amphibious assault on Rangoon. And I'm just going to say it off the bat, that request was pretty ridiculous. Six aircraft carriers? What the hell is this guy thinking? But if the conditions were met, Chiang Kai-shek promised his consent for the use of his army that was still in India, known then as the Yoke Force, based in Yunnan province. This prompted Washington and London to argue with another, and no solution came to satisfy either Britain or China. Wavell and Chiang Kai-shek kept arguing with another, while Stilwell flew back and forth between them, urging and arguing to put things into motion. Eventually, Wavell had to inform Chiang Kai-shek there was simply not enough sufficient infrastructure in the Assam border to support a large offensive yet, but that he was forming a more modest plan against northern Arakan the Chin Hills, and the upper Chindwin. Under pressure from Washington, i.e. Stilwell, Wavell was forced to give his general agreement with some of Stilwell's offensive plans. Upon receiving some agreement finally, Stilwell went to Chiang Kai-shek to present him with a description of Wavell's plans and the preparations for the Chinese forces, who would have to take their own share in the new Burma campaign. One thing Chiang Kai-shek stressed about the plan was that the Allies must control the Bay of Bengal, using naval and air power. FDR was told this by Stilwell, and he began talks to convince Churchill the necessity of controlling the Bay of Bengal for the Burma campaign. Churchill, however, would not agree to it. He kept saying, Let it happen, if it must happen, but after the monsoon. Churchill then said, given other eventualities, Britain could ready and supply an amphibious assault to support South Burma. Thus this led two American and one British general to fly over to Chongqing to talk it over with Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek received them quite coldly. He was too preoccupied with a supply issue. His nation was being bled. And he really wanted above all else supplies for his home front. And who could blame the man? He was willing to consider the Burma actions but needed more from his allies. He wanted the American air forces in China to be made independent under Chenault a request made by Chenault a year prior, but was rejected, and now it was granted. It was at this time he demanded more supplies, 10,000 tons flown each month, and again, he wanted 500 aircraft to do it. The Allied generals gave him excuses why they couldn't meet all these demands, really pissing him off. And at this time, Stilwell wrote of many rumors he began to hear around Changxing in his diary. January the 9th. Rumors that Madame's mission, whatever it was, has failed. What the hell is up? January the 11th, Madame has sent an SOS to TV to come and help her. She has apparently been bogged down. 
The rumor here is that she failed her mission. Whatever it was. Stilwell wrote this to his wife. Something has happened to May's trip. She had apparently planned a Queen Mary tour of the States, turned on the charm all over the place, and keeping the suckers in line. Now she's howling for help, so maybe the higher-ups are getting help and putting on the lid. Now, FDR was dealing with a multitude of issues. Stalin was clamoring to open a second front in Europe, and complained bitterly about the discrepancies in the Allied war effort. If anyone mentioned the Far East around Stalin, he would have none of it. Britain was interested in the Far East because they were creating a new Burma road using trains built from Lido in Assam. Chenault, Stilwell, and Chiang Kai-shek kept arguing for more aircraft in China, though Stilwell made many mentions that Chiang Kai-shek was simply hoarding such things for later use against the CCP. Chenault made many convincing arguments that a decent Chinese air force could keep the Japanese in check from advancing any further. FDR gave a bit of something to everyone. He told Chiang Kai-shek they would get him 10,000 troops and 25,000 tons of supplies to India for the new Lido Road. He told General Marshall that he believed they were neglecting the Chinese air forces that could really do some hurt to Japan. He said Chenault's program should be boosted and that the tonnage going over the hump had to increase. Yet, upon hearing all of this, Chiang Kai-shek remained unflinching, for he still argued the British must formulate amphibious assault in South Burma, or any campaign would simply fail. FDR was in a bit of a pickle. He couldn't really inform Chiang Kai-shek of British intentions on the matter, as he himself had no idea what the hell they would do. Now, supplies were definitely increasing over the hump. And for Chenault's Air Force, things were looking pretty good for the Burma Offensive taking off. But things began to deteriorate quite badly. The Japanese began the long-feared push towards Sichuan before Chenault's Air Forces were large enough to push them back. The Japanese would only be halted at Aichang, on the Yangtze, just around the other side of the gorges from Chongqing. On July the 19th, Stilwell submitted a three-point plan to Chiang Kai-shek for a land offensive by 20 to 30 Chinese divisions that would be opening up Rangoon to shipping. He argued this would allow Chiang Kai-shek to receive another 30,000 tons of supplies. The magic word is always supplies when it comes to Chiang Kai-shek. Stilwell called it XY plan, for he had in mind a two-pronged invasion with a X force invading from India and a Y force invading from Kunming in Yunnan province. The third element was to be a British amphibious assault against Rangoon, in concert with the Chinese offensive. But only once they had reasserted naval control in the Bay of Bengal and retook the Andaman Islands. And rather surprisingly, independent of Stilwell, the British chiefs of staff were at that very moment considering the recapture of Rangoon in an operation co-named Anakim. However, the plans were largely chimerical and scheduled for November. Wavell reiterated this point stating they did not have the necessary forces yet, especially air power to carry out the plan at the given time. Alongside this, the British Chiefs of Staff had made Anakim contingent on developments within other theaters like the Middle East, and they had hoped the USSR would go to war with Japan as well. Now, that's a rather large development to expect. Chiang Kai-shek's immediate response to Stilwell's plans were to stall. He was actually secretly hoping Stilwell would get sacked. 
Stilwell wrote in his diary at the time about how stupid, uneducated, and friendless Chiang Kai-shek was, and how he believed Madame Sung would make for a much more efficient leader than him. One entry included, This is the most dreary type of maneuvering I've ever done. Trying to guide and influence a stubborn, ignorant, prejudiced, conceited despot who never hears the truth except from me and finds it hard to believe. Then Lachlan Curry came back over talking to Chiang Kai-shek and using his Machiavellian magic. He managed to get Chiang Kai-shek to agree to Stowell's plans by August the 1st. So China was finally on board, but as you can imagine, Chiang Kai-shek had more demands. The major one being that Britain follow through. So General Marshall and Admiral Ernest King announced that Anakim was to be a vital part of the grand strategy in the war against Japan. Marshall followed this up with a crude, and I might add, very effective arm-twisting maneuver of his British counterparts, by bluntly stating that unless they signed up for Anakim, the Americans might have to pull out of planning for the invasion of Europe. The British, of course, countered by arguing the number of vessels required for the amphibious side of Anakim was enormous, and would cut down on what was available for the cross-channel invasion of Europe. But Ernest King checkmated the objection by offering to provide all the necessary landing craft from the United States Pacific Navy. Anakim was slated for November the 15th of 1943. Now, Operation Anakim was not alone. Alongside it would be Wobble's operation called Cannibal, which was an amphibious assault of Akyab and another operation called Ravenous. Operation Ravenous would take place simultaneously with the Arakan campaign, whereas Wavell planned for the 4th Corps to send the 17th Indian Division into the Chin Hills and then to Chindwin, while the 23rd Indian Division marched to Sitang. Operation Ravenous saw many delays and would be suspended until March of 1943. Now I'd like to take just a moment here to talk about the British forces in the CBI theater. When General Slim arrived to India after the brutal retreat, he was met with a lot of harsh criticism particularly from one lieutenant general named Noel Irwin of the 4th Corps. Slim and his soldiers were not treated as heroes, but as men who had skirked their duty. As one of my sources put it, Irwin was one of those over-promoted non-entities who compensated with dictatorial egocentricity. There is just a certain amount of flavor in that description, I find. When Irwin criticized Slim, Slim replied this, I never thought an officer whose command I was about to join could be so rude to me. Irwin replied, I can't be rude. I'm a senior. Thus, I believe a bit of a bromance was forming. Now, the two men had a bit of a, a history together, it turns out. Irwin had been commissioned into the Essex Regiment prior. During the Sedan Campaign of 1940, the 1st Essex Regiment broke and fled at Galabat, and Slim ended up sacking the commanding officer, who was an old friend of Irwin's. It seems Burma was a perfect opportunity for payback. It did not help that at this time India was in a crisis, because Japanese bombings had finally reached as far as Impal. By May the 20th, the Burma Corps had finally disbanded and Slim took over command of the newly formed 15 Corps, given the task of defending the Bay of Bengal region, with their HQ set up in Calcutta. Meanwhile, the command structure of the Indian Army had been reorganized into three new armies. 
the Northwestern Army, led by Lieutenant General Henry Finnis, the Southern Army, led by Lieutenant General Noel Bresford Pierce, and the Eastern Army, led by Lieutenant General Noel Irwin. India was seeing a severe amount of rioting by nationalists who wanted to gain independence from Britain, led by the famous Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi had launched the Quit India Now movement, commencing a wave of non-violent civil disobedience that he became quite well known for. The entire Congress Executive Committee was arrested in August of 1942 and imprisoned, where Gandhi himself would be stuck in jail for over two years. Because of the gravity of the India situation, the Burma action was reduced heavily, with General Wavell deploying no fewer than 57 infantry battalions in the worst hotspots of India, such as Bengal, Orissa, Bihar, and Assam. It is estimated the entire Pacific War was put back a good two months because of these troubles. On the other side of this was another large issue, that of the Indian nationalists aided by the Japanese. When Singapore fell, tens of thousands of Indian troops had been captured by the Japanese, and amongst them were many nationalists. Amongst these men was Subhas Chandra Bose, who organized a 30,000-strong Indian National Army to help liberate India. Bose came out in open support for the Axis powers after Germany invaded Belgium, and he resigned from the Indian Congress Party and he set up the Forward Bloc in Bengal, a proto-National Socialist Party. After escaping to Kabul, his subsequent career led him to Moscow and Berlin, where he began to perform daily broadcasts inciting uprisings amongst Indians. Later on, he would leave from Bordeaux aboard a Japanese submarine bound for Singapore, then to the Andaman Islands, where the Japanese had caught around 60,000 Indian troops. And as the Japanese put it, caught Britain's command with their gin and tonics half down. Of the 60,000 captured Indian troops, Bose persuaded roughly a third to join him in the new pro-Axis command that formed what would be the backbone of the INA. The troops that joined were not necessarily ideologically in tune with their new leader, but as Lieutenant Harbin Singh explained, I have traveled the world and seen the standard of the German army. They will win. The first major actions of the INA would be espionage in India to encourage further defection, leading to around 40,000 men to be trained to fight in the Burma Front, led by Colonel Iwakuro Kidio. In the end, however, as is always the tragedy with the Japanese in this war, tensions rose up between them and their new Indian allies, leading to crackdowns on the INA leadership. The Japanese lacked experts on India, and for all the talk of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, it was unbelievably hindered by the way the Japanese treated all those they came into contact with. You would have to imagine it's kind of hard to be excited to be part of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere when some Japanese bayonet your citizens and refer to them as inferior beings, like dogs. Well, because of Japanese atrocities and the lack of any Japanese experts on India, countless INA would defect back to the Allies, leading to arrests such as that of Mohan Singh. Thus, the POWs became POWs once more. Between December of 1942 to February of 1943, Bose gradually failed to keep the first INA united, and it would cease to exist, though it would come back later on, famously during Operation Yugo in 1944. Now back to the British. When Slim and his men arrived back to India, they were treated, to put it frankly, like shit. With zero understanding of what the troops had suffered during the terrible retreat from Burma, Many officers complained about the lack of discipline 
and that morale had all but broken down amongst the new arrivals. The administrative staff that turned up at the New Delhi HQ were referred to as the Garberdine Swine. There was a failure of communication between those who had seen active service at the front and those who had not yet, alongside a lack of proper leadership. There was also a lot of blame going around, like towards General Alexander, whose sudden decision to cut and run had caused quite a terrible psychological effect amongst the men, reducing morale. Wavel was also to blame. As Viceroy, he was not administering enough. Too much ad hoc was going on. One issue, for example, was that of the Indian Tea Association, which was running trucks with relief supplies as far as Impal, but not beyond. Then after receiving a ton of complaints, they ceased running even to Impal. These complaints were coming from Indian civil servants and journalists arguing that the rescue efforts were racist, with Europeans and Anglo-Indians being favored. As for General Slim, he was cautious to point any fingers at his superiors. But he did make remarks without naming anyone, stating that zero preparations had been made to welcome the Burma veterans back to India. If our welcome into India was not what we expected, the comfort provided was even less. Basically, there was zero housing available for the Burma survivors. They were simply left to bivouac in the open. The luckier guys were herded into makeshift camps originally designed to take a tenth of their number, but men were shoehorned into them nonetheless. As one eyewitness put it, It was uncomfortable, not only because it was raining hard, but because we had no shelter or unsoiled ground on which to lie. Thousands of people having previously occupied it, with surprisingly primitive ideas for soldiers on the most elementary rules of sanitation. When men were transported there, there was a huge lack of medical help and supplies, thus those suffering from the typical culprits of malaria, dysentery, or cholera often succumbed while en route. One Colonel Michael Calvert recalled, There were no blankets and no food. We had cholera, dysentery, and malaria cases on the train but there were no medical or even toilet facilities. The lavatory accommodation consisted of ropes to which the user clung while hanging over the side of his truck. We would have suffered more had it not been for the planters and their wives. As we slowed or stopped at stations, they threw food and other supplies to us. A lot of the soldiers' accounts told similar tales of campsites where rain would pour down upon them and most did not have tents, leaving them there sitting in mud. There were rarely any ground sheets or blankets, and not nearly enough mosquito nets. It is estimated nearly 90% of those who made the trek out of Burma suffered from malaria, and 20% had to be hospitalized. Things were bad for Slim's men, but it was nothing compared to that of the Chinese troops. The 38th Division, which had fought valiantly at Yanangguan, was treated terribly when they arrived in late May. General Sun Lijian, a graduate of Virginia Military Academy and an excellent English speaker, found himself under suspicion and in danger of internment. General Irwin regarded Sun with contempt and, to be frank, with a lot of racism. He complained that the Chinese were, quote, a pack of parasites and pusillanimous bastards, always wanting to be fed and pampered at British expense. Fortunately, Wavel, for once, exerted himself and overruled Irwin's attempts to intern the Chinese general. Stilwell, likewise, had warned Sun that, quote, The limey bastards would try to manipulate him and make him over. 
Now, as I said, Slim handed over his troops to the 4th Corps and transferred over to Calcutta, where he took command of the 15th Indian Corps. The 15th Corps consisted of the 70th British Division, 50 armored brigades, and some assorted corps units. Slim spent a great deal of time whipping his army into shape, insisting on regular parades and physical fitness. He instituted his own training program based on the grim experiences he had over the past year. This meant a lot of jungle fighting. He also taught the boys if you found Japanese units to your rear, not to panic, but instead to also assume it was the Japanese who were surrounded. To not hold long continuous lines of defense. To never make frontal attacks when there were other options available, like performing hooks or flanking maneuvers, and that tanks, while useful, should always be packed with infantry to back them up. He also told the boys the Japanese loved to scream at them at night, and the best answer was just silence. All of this became known as Slim's Eightfold Credo, and I would say it saved a lot of allied boys' lives. Now, Wavell had been forming plans for the reoccupation of Burma, even as the troops were retreating in disarray in May. Both public opinion in Britain and America demanded something be done urgently in Burma. Thus, Wavell ordered Irwin and his Eastern Army to begin operations in the Arakan Peninsula of Burma on September the 17th of 1942. The aim of the operation was to seize Akyab Island, and from there bombing raids would be launched against Rangoon. Yet, a Arakan campaign meant challenging nature at its most difficult time, even before the Japanese were going to be encountered. From the Indian frontier to a point just short of Akyab Island ran the Mayu Hills, over 90 miles long and 20 miles wide. The ridges held razor-sharp scarps some 20 feet, with narrow strips of land on either side of its hills. Jungle was everywhere. There were even streams that caused mudslides and other horrifying terrains. Monsoon season brought 200 inches of rain in May. Leeches, mosquitoes, and malaria were constant enemies in such terrain. Waffle's campaign called for a threefold approach. Number one, a direct infantry attack into the Mayu Hills. Number two, guerrilla activities with long-range penetration. Number three, amphibious landings at Akiab Island. Slim was not consulted on his opinion, though he would go on the record to state that combining the three plans was a fatal mistake, and he favored going for the penetration option solely. Wavell was the most inclined towards the amphibious approach, but he lacked landing craft because of Operation Torch. Operation Torch eventually forced Wavell to give up the amphibious aspect, and instead he ordered Irwin to blast a passage to Akeb Island overland through the Mayu Hills. As the planning for the Arakan offensive advanced, Irwin promptly decided to redeploy Slim's 15th Corps at Ranchi to raise fresh divisions and train these units in jungle combat. While Irwin himself assumed personal command of the 14th and 26th Indian divisions for the coming offensive. This was such a clumsy and convoluted command arrangement that it can only be explained by Irwin's desire to keep Slim away from important operational roles, i.e., Irwin was being a dick to Slim. He was a compulsive micromanager, and he would thus personally deal at the same time with the domestic insurgencies in northern India, the administrative duties of his army from Calcutta to Fort Hertz, and the battalion-level control of the first Arakan campaign. By December, the advance got underway led by Major General Lloyd, who would have nine brigades under his control, a force three times the size of a normal division. Meanwhile, Irwin was overseeing everything from Calcutta to Fort Hertz in northern Burma, while simultaneously trying to control a domestic insurgency. 
Erwin's hatred for Slim overcame his reasoning capability, and he did not delegate enough to help Lloyd. Erwin, as you may have guessed, would turn out to be the wrong man for the job. He had been critiqued by modern scholars to have been, quote, a man of dictatorial and egocentric temperament, who treated subordinates like indentured coolies deserving neither trust nor consideration. Erwin was also, by nature, a meddler. He trusted no one but himself, and involved himself constantly in detail, which should have been of no concern to any army commander. He gave little or no latitude to his subordinates to use their own initiative, and ensured that in every point of detail his orders were carried out without discussion or deviation. This made him dangerously inflexible, finding it difficult to change his mind and approach when the situation demanded it. Despite the issues, at first the Arakan offensive went quite well. Lloyd enjoyed the advantage of numerical superiority and air supremacy. On December the 16th, Lloyd's forces finally started their attack, unopposed, reoccupying Mongda and Buthidang one day later. From there, the 47th and the 123rd Brigades would advance east of the Mayu River towards Rasidang and down the coast to Foul Point. The Japanese made no attempt to mount a defense between Mongda Batadong, or Kayukta. General Miyawaki had decided to send his 2nd Battalion to prepare the defensive positions at Rathudong, and his 1st Battalion to Dongbak. General Aida likewise ordered the 55th Division of Lieutenant General Koga Takeishi to reinforce the defenses of Arakan. By Christmas Day, Lloyd's men reported to him that the Japanese had pulled out of Rathudong, and on the eastern bank of the Mayu River, it was like a Christmas gift. The Mayu River enters the Bay of Bengal, you see, and it holds a narrow peninsula which goes out to Foul Point, about six miles away from Akyab Island. The Japanese under General Koga dug in at Foul Point, expecting the Allies to mount an attack to seize the island. Lloyd was to advance along the Arakan coast to Foul Point, where they would be reinforced by the 6th British Brigade to launch an assault of Akyab across the Mayu River. Lloyd was also ordered to capture Rathadong Village to prevent the Japanese from using said river. At Foul Point, the Japanese prepared unsuspecting weapons, as Slim described it. For the first time, we had come against the Japanese bunkers. From now on, it would be very familiar to us. These were small, strong points made usually of heavy logs with four to five feet of earth and so camouflaged in the jungle that they could not be picked out at even 50 yards without prolonged searching. These bunkers held garrisons varying from 5 to 20 men, plentiful supplied with medium and light machine guns. The bunkers were formidable and impervious to field guns or medium bombs. The redoubts at Dombak were natural anti-tank positions with steep sides up to 9 feet high to some of the bunkers. On January the 7th of 1943, the Allies got their first taste of trying to assault heavily fortified Japanese defenses. They were thrown back with terrible losses for over four successive days. Wavell and Irwin were shocked, and both visited Lloyd on the 10th, telling him he had to take Don back at all cost. Lloyd requested tanks, and would be granted them. To Slim's shock, he was asked to supply just a pack of tanks from the 50th Tank Brigade, part of his 15 Corps. He objected, pointing out that tanks needed to be used en masse, not in piecemeals. He said, quote, the more you use, the fewer you lose. You don't just send tanks in penny packets. These were very wise words. 
Well, they didn't listen to Slim, and instead they deployed half a squadron of tanks on a very narrow front. And as Slim predicted, eight tanks made zero progress. The British assaults were brushed off with heavy casualties. Trying to keep Slim as far away as possible from the campaign, Irwin only assigned eight Valentine tanks to the Dombak front. Lloyd would also continue to throw all he had against the entrenched enemy throughout January, but each time the outcome ended the same. A disappointing defeat and a humiliating mass of casualties. By the end of January, the 55th Brigade, reinforced with eight Valentine tanks, were sent to relieve the battered 47th Brigade, and on February the 1st, they too would launch a frontal assault against the Dombak's Chong Dungouts. And there, most of their tanks would get stuck in ditches while others would be knocked out by Japanese anti-tank guns and shell fire. Thus, the brigade's attack faltered. General Lloyd was suffering the exact same failings that had characterized the British Army's performance in the Burma retreat. Poorly trained troops, completely unprepared for jungle operations, were tossed at an enemy much more comfortable with the terrain. The troops were quickly demoralized by their failure to penetrate the Japanese defenses. Again, like we have said multiple times in this series, the apparent superiority of Japanese troops and their flanking movements had a psychological effect. One awestruck JAD officer noted, One could stare at the Jap line for hours on end with binoculars and scarcely see a thing move or a leaf displaced. Irwin's foolish notion to tell the troops to hold their ground at all costs without providing a realistic strategy led to unnecessary casualties upon the 14th Indian Division. On the other side of the coin, the Japanese in Burma for the first time got to experience the horrors of waiting for enemy attacks while huddled inside mosquito-infested jungles and bunkers. Corporal Fujita wrote in his diary about the nature of this. What is war? A tragedy. The mutual infliction of human beings. The oppression of peoples. The use of civilization to get at each other's throats. Corporal Fujita would write this to his girlfriend. Should I die, Mizue, you ought to have chosen another man and be happy. Look after mother. Goodbye to all. The psychological stress the troops suffered on both sides to mother nature, i.e. jungle life, was pretty well described by one private Dick Findeman of the Second Royal Norfolks who complained in his diary, Hairy chest would get prickly heat and it could send you on the verge of bloody insanity. You shouldn't scratch. But you did scratch, and it would bleed. The itch would become infected and sore. You get it on your head. Get it around your private parts, any parts of your body. The British assault fell apart. They were unable to breach the Japanese defenses and they soon fell back. Wavell compared the failure to the fierce battle fought by the Australians and Americans over in the Bunagona front. It seems quite clear that we are facing a form of Buna and Gona. Fusilier William Smith described the scene as, quote, It was like a scene from Dante's Inferno, as screams and yells from the wounded and dying filled the air, even above the bombardment. All the casualties seemed to be from our own. By the start of March, Miyawaki's 3rd Battalion came to the Caledon River where they defeated the British guerrilla force known as the V-Force, who were trying to disrupt his lines of communications. Lloyd followed this up by deploying the 55th and 47th Brigades east of the Mayu River to continue to put pressure on Rathadong, as Irwin had sent the 6th Brigade to take over the abysmal Dombak Front. 
The first week of March would see the 3rd Battalion of the 213th Regiment crossing the Mayu River and smashing the already worn down 55th Brigade, forcing the Indians to retreat, leaving just the 47th Brigade isolated north of Rathadong. I guess Irwin should have not done everything he could to get rid of Slim. Because guess who's going to come and save the day? I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm just now releasing a seven-part series on China's warlord era. Give it a look, it mean a lot to me. The first phase of the Arkan campaign was a complete disaster. General Irwin, in his efforts to belittle General Slim, had caused an absolute catastrophe to occur. He ignored advice, went into unfriendly terrain, unprepared, and worst of all, he just kept tossing men right into the meat grinder, causing unnecessary deaths. <laughs> 